All right, let's go ahead and get started. There is so much misinformation out there about angels. When, if you go to a Christian bookstore and look for at paintings of angels, um, you either see the naked baby angels or you'll see uh, the beautiful lady angels, whereas every angel that we're, we're shown in the Bible is a male. Every angel that we're shown in the Bible, the, almost the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, don't be afraid, which the pictures that I see, that's not the image that I'm getting. We, we've seen that uh, in popular television that angels have to earn their wings. I've been at many funerals of believers when I heard someone say, God needed another angel, so they took Jim Bob to heaven because he needed another angel. Those sorts of things um, do not help us. They're not helpful to, for us to understand a creature, that, a created being that we've been given that's there to help us. And so we're going to take the next uh, six to eight weeks and we're going to learn what the Bible actually teaches about angels. Now, there's some things that we're going to get, get up against, maybe some information that you want, that the Bible is silent about. It doesn't say how many angels there are. And so we're going to establish the rule that when the Bible is silent, we're silent. I'm not going to sit here and give you my speculation about what color hair angels have. It doesn't matter what I think. And if the Bible doesn't tell us, then God didn't think that that was something that was important for us in our spiritual walk to know. So today we're just going to set the groundwork and we're, we're going to start out looking at exactly what do we mean. We're going to define the term of, of an angel. So let's begin with prayer and let's get started. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us what we need to know. And Lord, I pray that as we look to your word on this subject that so many people are interested in, Lord, that we would take away from this a high view of you, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. Lord, we thank you so much for angels. We thank you that they are sent as ministering spirits. And God, I pray that, that this evening, as we begin this journey, we will learn. Lord, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, that's where we're going to begin. Uh, and as you're turning, I'm going to read a definition by Wayne Grudem. Uh, in his systematic theology, he defines angels as angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. And I'm going to try tonight to defend that definition biblically, that they are uh, created beings is where we're going to park most of our time. So Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15, says, and it's referring to Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. And so as we study angels, the first and foremost thing that we need to understand is that angels were created by Jesus Christ and they serve him. They're his. As the text says, they were created by him and for him. They do his bidding, whether good angels or fallen angels. Every time we see a demon, and we'll look at a a lot of those in, in in, in a few weeks, and we'll be looking at demons, whenever a demon acted in Jesus' presence, it acted, asked permission. You, if you're a believer, have within you the creator of angels. And the reason I say that is there are Christians that not just in other faiths that think that they need to pray to angels or that they need to to pray special favor from angels. And the reality is, is angels are created just like you to serve their king. They're very different created beings than you. They have other strengths and weaknesses than you, you and I, but they are created. They're not to be worshipped. They're not to be um, treated like they're some kind of um, talisman. I've, I've heard Christians praying that, you know, do, do God do this, that, and the other thing through your angels. Why don't you just ask God to do it? If he chooses to use angels, let him do it. If he chooses to use your next door neighbor, let him do it. Let God do what he wants to do. You're, you, it just amazes me that Christians forget that because of the blood of Christ, you have the right to boldly approach the throne of grace. That you, as a redeemed individual, a subject that we'll see angels long to understand, that God chose you, redeemed you, and now you have the right to walk into the throne room of the Creator God and lay your request out to Him and He hears it. We're also told in Romans chapter 8 that He will answer that request in the way that's best for you. How many times have you ever prayed for something that you really wished? Looking back on, you're thank, you know, what's the Garth Brooks song? I thank God for unanswered prayers. Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit interpreted your prayer and He knew what was best. I mean, I, I've been in the room around a sick bed before and, and heard people pray, Oh, just God, just let Him live. And I know that's not what they really want. What they they want is the past. And they want what's best for that loved one. And maybe sometimes what the best thing for that loved one is God's ultimate healing to take them home. And those of you who have ever seen a loved one struggle through a disease like cancer that drags out over a long period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because oftentimes I've seen believers that got to a point to where their prayers changed. And they started praying, God, just, just take them home easy. And so, sometimes we'll see throughout the Bible, God chooses to use angels to answer our prayers. Sometimes he chooses to use other things. But you don't have to, you should never pray to angels. It's kind of like the chain of command in the military. If I have the right to talk to the captain about it, why am I going to talk to some Lance Cooley? Some of you that meant absolutely nothing. A lower ranking person. (laughs) So, we see that angels are created by Jesus for Jesus. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, 
the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. We saw in Colossians that every created being, whether angels or demons, will acknowledge the Father. And here in this text where it says that you made heaven and then the heavens of heavens. And Jewish thought there are three heavens. Remember Paul said, I was, I was carried up into the third heaven. So the first heaven is if you walk outside, there's clouds, there's, there's birds flying. That's the first heaven in Jewish thought. The second heaven would be the stars, the created sky that we see. The stars, the moon, uh, planets, that sort of thing. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the abode of God, where God lives. That's the third heaven. And so here the author is saying that more or less. He's saying, you made the heaven. So I look up and see the stars and go, wow, you made all that, God. And also the heaven of heavens. That all the angels, all of the seraphim, all of the cherubim are all created by God. God preserves them and they worship him. Psalms 148 says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye shining stars. Praise him, ye highest heavens and ye waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. So everything that is, that's not him, he made. So I want us to establish that in the very beginning. Uh, I had a lady today that, that knew that I was teaching on this, and she said, when I was a little kid, I was afraid of angels because everybody talked about them, and I'd see pictures of, of an angel over a baby bed kind of thing, and she's like, I don't like all these people hanging around looking at me. That's creepy. And so re- realize that your God created those angels, and they will praise him. Going back to the definition, angels are created. They are spiritual beings. In Hebrews chapter 1 we read, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we saw in, as we looked at their creation that one of their purposes is to praise and glorify God. We all see here in this text that their other purpose, or one of their other purposes, is they are sent out to serve and to serve Him for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, which are, that's you and me. They are here on, around us for a distinct purpose, and that is to serve us. So they're spiritual beings, though. It says here, um, that they are ministering spirits. And then throughout the Bible, we can see that a spirit is defined. Jesus was saying, after he rose from the dead, see my hands and feet, that is, I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So we know that angels don't have flesh and bones like us. See, one of the things that we see throughout the Bible is uh, similes. And sometimes we have a hard time uh, understanding what they mean. And, and I can give you an example. If I used a simile to talk about my wife, and I said, my wife is so beautiful. Her eyes are like diamonds. Well, how exactly like diamonds are they? Are you try, saying that they're, they're hard and cold and that you can cut glass with them? And so like 
can mean a lot of different things. That's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time understanding the book of, of the Revelation, because there's lots of likes. So how is it like a locust? Is it like a locust like there's swarms of them? Is it like a locust like it's going to come, come down and stick to a tree and then, then leave its husk on the tree? How is it like a locust? Well, so when we see the Bible talking about angels, we kind of have this image in our, in our mind of a person. And Jesus is saying here, they don't have hands and feet and flesh and bones like we have. Spirits don't have that. Now, sometimes they show themselves as that way, but again, those are, are comparisons. And so, we read in Numbers a story that I think will help uh, us understand that. So here, uh, there, was a, there was a prophet whose name was Balaam. I love this story anyway, because it just shows... Um, it just shows human nature. So Balaam was paid to go and curse Israel. So he tries to do that several times, and, and he ends up, um, I'll just read, starting with verse Numbers twenty two twenty two. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, for some reason, the Lord allowed the donkey to see what was going on, didn't allow Balaam to see it. And Balaam started whooping on his donkey. And he turned her to the road, and the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards and on the wall on either side. So the, Balaam's literally moving his donkey around to try to get him, and the angel is, this is like a, uh, a Larry and Moe thing. It's like the donkey moves over here, the angel's, no, you're not going this way. Oh, suck a fool, you're not going over here either. And so you got this action going on, but Balaam can't see the angel, and the donkey can. And so Balaam's thinking that his donkey's lost his mind. He's whooping the, the, the not the angel, he's whooping the donkey, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She pressed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he hit her again. And the angel went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either the right or left. So Balaam, the donkey goes up against the wall, squishing Balaam's foot, and then the donkey gets between the wall and the outside. So now the donkey's stuck, and uh, when she saw that she was stuck, she sat down uh, under Balaam, and Balaam was angry, and so he starts whooping this donkey with a stick, which is... Again, it's just hilarious to me. And I will say, having owned a donkey before, I've talked about gray in sermons. I, I had a donkey because we had a coyote problem uh, uh, when I lived in Coleman. And donkeys are extremely stubborn. They get that reputation in, in real life. In fact, I learned that if I walked out into a, the pasture where the donkey was and did not have, I had a two-by-four that I had actually cut down so that I could hold it like a paddle. And if I walked out in that field with that two-by-four in my hand, the donkey would act like yeah, I wasn't even there. He'd just eat and go along like I don't even see that he's there. But if I ever was in a hurry and tried to cut across that pasture without something in my hand, that donkey would be right on top of me with those ears laying back. And I'm just giving you a word of wisdom. If a donkey's showing his teeth, he ain't smiling at you. I'm just saying. They're mean, they're stubborn, they, and, and, and so here Balaam is mad, and he's whooping this donkey with, it, with his staff. And then the, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, and so the donkey turns to Balaam and says, what have I done to you that you've hit me? I, I don't know if this is the first time this donkey's talked to, to Balaam. My donkey never spoke to me. I think he cussed me out a couple of times in donkey, but never in English. Um, because you've made a fool of me. 
I wish I had a sword in my hand, but then I'd kill you. Balaam just continues talking to the donkey. I'm thinking that if I had a donkey that started chatting me up, I'm not going to go, well, the reason why I hit you is because, but Balaam does. And the donkey said, am I not your donkey? Have you not ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? He says no to the donkey. So the donkey's making a very cogent argument. Um, And the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And so after this whole conversation with the donkey, the text that we really were driving toward is, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Up to this point, the angel was there. Balaam just didn't see it. For God to make his point about his chosen people, he opened the eyes of Balaam so that he saw the angels. We see a similar story in 2 Kings where we have Elisha the prophet who's surrounded by the armies of Syria. And his servant is scared to death because this army is all around him. And Elisha, apparently God had already opened his eyes. He prays that God would open the eyes Please open the eyes of his young servant. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, we, you may be reading that and saying, well, that's, that's in, in as, as my kids say, in Bible times. There's a, a man whose name is George G. Patton, who... It was said of him that when he went to the New Hebrides Islands, there were no Christians, and when he died, there were no heathen. That's what's on his tombstone, his headstone. The New Hebrides at that point was occupied by um, a group of people that were known headhunters to the point that several missionaries before Reverend Patton had shown up on that island and had been killed and eaten within view of the ship that dropped them off. George G. Patton was a pastor in England, and a very successful pastor, a growing church, and he felt God calling him to the New Hebrides. And his congregation was very angry with him and accused him of abandoning them and accused them of... Uh, uh, he, in fact, he had a man that come up and said, You, sir, will be eaten by cannibals. And Reverend Patton looked him in the face and said, And you, sir, shall be eaten by worms. I have no doubt of God's ability to reconstitute the both of us. And so off he went. And in those days, a missionary went to the field and they carried all their belongings in a casket because they weren't coming back. And so he and his wife and their uh, Scottish Terrier dog loaded up on a steamship, got just off the shore of the New Hebrides, and they were let off. Um, Every night, he would see running through the woods, the villagers, and they had no conversation with him, but they didn't eat him, and they didn't kill him. And his wife passed away there on the beach. She um, got malaria and died, and he buried her on the beach and slept on top of her grave so that they wouldn't dig her up to eat her. So it was just him and his dog. And they would walk up and down the beach every day, And he would just call out. He didn't know their language. He would just call out. And one day, a little man was curious enough that he came out. 
And George started talking with him and began putting together the syntax of the language and, and, and learning the language by sim- simply holding up a coconut and saying, what is this? And he would say what it was. And slowly over time, he was able to learn enough of the language and he was able to lead this young man to Christ. And the, the, if you ever get an opportunity to read the autobiography of George Patton, it's a great, great book because the little, the little dog apparently... Uh, they were the the villagers were afraid of the dog, and the little dog would always w- wake up and whenever the villagers would sneak out. Um, and so it's just a it's a funny story. It was one of, it's one of those books that I read to my kids when they were younger before they went to bed every night. After the young man uh, got saved and taught George G. Patton the language, he was able to go walk up and down that beach and preach the gospel. Now this is a multi-year process, but he preached the gospel and slowly people started getting saved and he was able to plant a little church there. And many years later, he had one of the village elders come to him and say to him, I'm so glad that, that you have come. I'm so glad that you have taught us what you have. I want to ask, who were the men who were with you when you first came? And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the guy said, every night we would plan to ambush you. And we would come all out around and we would get to the edge of the beach. And you would have men all around you guarding you. Who were they? And so in that moment, at that time, God opened the eyes of those villagers for the gospel's sake. It wasn't so that George Patton would get any glory. It wasn't so that we could say what a great guy he is. Because nobody in this room probably, before I started talking about him, knew who that man was. But right now in the New Hebrides, that island is 90% Christian. The gospel went forth in a mighty way onto that island. And God was able to get the glory. Amy Carmichael wrote a book called Things As They Are. It's out of print. And it's a hard book to read. She was a a, a missionary there in India. And she would go around uh, on a circuit trying to tell people about the gospel. She'd learned the language. And she writes about just the depression she experienced. Because nobody was willing to hear the gospel. Nobody... Uh, was really interested, what they were interested in, because she was English, was she said that they, I was like their little British pet. They would let me come into their house, they would drink tea with me, they would talk with me, and then when they were done, they would shoo me out. And so she's praying and begging God what to do. How do I do? I'm having no impact on, for the gospel's sake. I'm wasting my life here. And one day after taking one of those circuits, she comes back to her house and there was a little girl sitting on the steps. And she says, can I help you? And this little girl who's three or four years old says, I was waiting for you. And so she took that little girl in and she um, led her to Christ and raised her and realized that her ministry, that what God would have her to do in India was not to go out and teach but to take these orphans, and because in that culture, oftentimes, little girls especially would be given to the temples. They would be thrown away for all practical purposes and sold into, for all practical purposes, sexual slavery. This little girl's story was, though, that her parents had taken her to the temple and given her over to the priest, and she was afraid, and she was thrown into a room, and there was a man standing there. And that man appeared to her after she had prayed, if there's a God, please protect me. 
And the man said, come with me. And he walked to a locked door, and the door opened. And the man led the little girl out, and then walked her through the village, and said, sit right here, a lady's coming, and she will tell you what to do. And he walked off. Now, I have no doubt in my mind, because that incident completely revolutionized Amy Carmichael's ministry. It changed her from being a person that was failing in her ministry. She's crying out to God, why am I wasting my, my, my life in India? To a person who, to this day, her orphanages are scattered all around India. And to this day, those orphanages raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, who then go out and preach and teach the gospel to their own people. And so in that situation, Amy Carmichael did not get any glory. It wasn't about Amy Carmichael. It wasn't even about that little girl. It was about the gospel being issued forth for hundreds of years. And God, in those cases, allowed someone to see a ministering spirit. God still uses angels today. If it's in the book, it's being used God, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we, you are in the fight, if you are doing everything in your power to walk and follow after Jesus, to make much of him as you go, you are promised, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. You're promised that. Jesus is not lying when he says that, I heard a preacher say one time, and I believe it, that 90% of the sermons he's ever heard on that text is trying to explain why it's not happening. Jesus said, ask whatever you will and it would be done for you. It means the same thing today that it meant when Jesus said it. If my word abides in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. John Piper, in this beautiful illustration, says, God gave us a wartime tool. We have a radio that we can get on and call for any kind, anything that we need to support us in the battle. When I was in the Marine Corps, we had these radios called Prick 77s. They were horrible. Did you use Prick 77? Oh, they were, see, they already got rid of them by the time you got there. So there were horrible radios. But nonetheless, you could get on that radio and make a call and say, I need something. I, I heard a, a story about eight Marines that were stuck during the Persian Gulf. They were a forward observing team. They ended up getting stuck on the roof in a city. And they called and literally billions of dollars of assets were moved around and shifted so that aircraft could come in and keep the enemy off of those eight guys. Just eight guys with a radio. Billions of dollars. The weight of American resources were put to bay to make sure that those eight men survived and were able to be taken out. We have a tool that makes that look pathetic in prayer. What would happen if one of those Marines, or if I had, when I was in the Marine Corps, picked that radio up and asked for a pillow on my, a, a piece of candy on my pillow? And yet that's exactly how we use prayer. God has given you a tool that literally the God that created the universe said, ask what Ever you will, and it will be done for you. And you can believe that that's true. And we have the audacity to use it to call God and ask for a new truck and a pony. We're constantly niggling God over stuff that doesn't matter for eternity. 
The reason why I abhor prosperity gospel is because what it does is it cheapens the gospel and it's not real prosperity. The Bible warns us over and over and over and over again that one of the most damaging things you can have in your life is lots of money. Even secular science has proven that the distance between a person making $40,000 a year to $80,000 a year does not increase happiness at all. And after $80,000 a year up, happiness levels actually decrease. That's from the world. And yet when we get on our knees or we talk to God, almost always it's for some stupid thing that doesn't matter that's probably going to hurt you in the long run. And so God has established that there are ministering spirits that are literally here, according to what we read, to minister to you, according to the book of Hebrews. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're not sent to fetch us a Coke. And so the first thing that you need to realize, if you want to access the power of God in your life, get in the fight. There are people around us, living around us, that are literally dying and going to hell. The enemy literally is fighting for your soul. It may be something as, as simple as saying, you know what, you don't need to read your Bible today. Just Facebook, you got to keep up with what's going on. You really just need to pray for people. Whatever he can do to keep you just merely bebopping along, if you look at the, the prodigal son and his brother, one was respectable, one was not respected. One spent all his money on prostitutes and booze. The other one worked and in the eyes of everybody around him, was a good guy. And barring the gospel breaking in, both would have gone to the same hell. The devil's going to use whatever he can, whatever he can to keep you out of the fight, both in your own heart, fighting for your spiritual growth, fighting for your relationship with Jesus, fighting for the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. I was preaching at CR the other Sunday, and I, I said, and I don't think in my life I've ever heard a preacher preach and me go, yeah, that's right, that's sin. I didn't know that was sin. When I sin, I know what I'm doing. I don't know about you. I know what I'm doing, and I just do it anyway, because I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what sin is. And the devil's going to keep you happy. He's going to keep you cool or warm just so you can rock right along. And so if you want to access these ministering spirits, step one is get in the fight. Fight every day. I was talking with someone this afternoon, and I shared with him that I tell, whenever we're working out, uh, I'm the strength and conditioning coach at Glencoe, and I tell the boys all the time, your body doesn't get to tell you what to do. You tell your body what to do. You know, there's some truth to that in our spiritual walk, too. We need to have the discipline to just do what we're told to do often. As we talk about demons, a lot of times in the Christian world or watching TV or reading some books, you would think that demons are, you know, behind every bush. That they're trying to, well, the book of James lays out how sin works. And we're going to go in detail with that. But the way sin works is the devil pulls you by, away by your own lusts and desires. The way he's going to tip you is by giving you something you want. 
And like a little kid with a piece of candy. Come here. 